listen to Death and All the Rest. I'm Lizzie Salwin. And I'm Zoe Inglefield. Hello and welcome to our first ever podcast. Lizzie, are you excited? I sure am. We wanted to start this by explaining what it is we're doing here. We've both lost some of the most important people in our lives, so we decided it would be a good idea to talk about our experiences. Hopefully, we will be able to answer some of the more tricky questions that people might have about the final stages of life. While we are younger than most to have lost a parent or two, death can happen at any stage, and as we move through our mid-30s, it's likely that others in our age group will start this journey with their own loved ones. And if we can provide any comfort or solidarity through telling our own stories, then it will be totally worth it. There are so many things I'd wish I'd known at the very beginning that would have made this process so much easier for me. And perhaps all the creeps like me with a morbid fascination of death will just find this interesting. I'm sure they will. (laughs) And fair warning, some of the things we discuss may be a bit graphic and confronting. But that's usually the stuff I want to know. So let's introduce ourselves. I'll go first... Hi, my name is Zoe and I'm a 34-year-old orphan. My dad passed away in 2012 when I was 25 from throat cancer. He had a number of other health issues and had been really unwell for about 10 years, but it was only three months from his diagnosis of cancer to his death, so it was really quick. Wow, I didn't know it was three months. It seemed like longer, but... I think it was because he, like I'll go into detail, but he was already so unwell to begin with that it... Final it was a straw. short, short, yeah, yeah. short battle. Um, and my darling mum lost her battle with metastasized breast cancer this past December. So it's still really fresh for me. So fresh. It's like, what, four months now? Yeah. Wow. I know. It still doesn't feel real, no, but... It doesn't for I don't know if it ever will. No. My dad was a sweetheart. He was such a character and the best joke teller I have ever met. <laughs> but he did drink. Quite a bit, actually. He worked really hard, but when he came home from work, he would drink probably half a 40 ounce of whiskey a night. Good Lord. I know. That would kill us both together. I know. And he he never got hungover. He never threw up. He was never sick. Maybe his body just got so used to it. Oh, totally. I mean, he was was well and truly pickled. But It's a lot. Yeah. And obviously, it caught up with him. Mm. But, you know... He was a very jolly drunk. He would chat away and listen to his rock and roll music and smoke his tobacco pipe in the living room. It was like a chimney that followed him everywhere. I suppose it's better than being a nasty one, you know? Oh, yeah. Like, he... Actually, my dad was my favourite parent. I don't ever remember him really (laughs) telling me off. And and I think that drove my mum crazy, Mm. which I don't blame her for now as as probably what I would call the strict parent out of my family. It's always one. I know. He was easygoing, he would always give me $20 whenever I needed it, and he was not at all strict. He actually secretly bought me a box of beers for my 13th birthday party. Oh my god, that's hilarious. Did you drink them? We did. I mean, I think we drank, yeah, it was like 12 beers between probably 11 or 10 of us, and I'm just going to say it ended in a really regretful game of spin the bottle. Oh, yep. Yep. Anyway, anyway, moving on, I won't dwell on it. But I would never go to dad with any serious problem. I would never ask him permission for anything, and I don't recall him ever doing much hands-on parenting. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was always mum. I do know that he had a very rare angry outburst, which were terrifying, but as I said, he was never violent, so I don't think it was worse than any other dad being super mad. Yeah. 
I think the biggest effect of dad's drinking was the effect on mum. As a kid, I remember mum was always very tightly wound. Mm. She would fly off the handles constantly. If you spilt some coke on the carpet, she was in a rage. If you intentionally were like a little asshole and broke something precious, she was in a rage. See, I just can't remember your mum like that. Well, like, you didn't all. know her when she was no. with dad. And, and I think that was part of it. She was always under so much pressure and so much stress that you couldn't gauge between I think the biggest effect of dad's drinking was the effect on what was really naughty it was always sort of like the same yeah the decibels were always at 10 or you know like (laughs) and she's got a loud she did have a loud voice she did have a big loud Canadian voice so frightening yeah frightening I think essentially mum felt like a single mother and Mm. dad was like another big child well yep sounds like it yeah when I was 13 my dad went to rehab and was sober for three months I was like, oh my God, wow. This is what it's like to have a dad that's present and a functioning member of the family. This is amazing. But my dad was miserable, so he went back to drinking. Sad, eh? It is. I mean, that's really when things changed for me because like, I didn't really know the difference between having a dad that was drunk all the time and a dad that was sober. And then when he was sober for those three months, I was like, oh my gosh, this is this must be what everyone no, else sort yeah. of experiences. Like, my dad was like a fun, jolly guy, but he wasn't like a... He's more of a friend, it sounds totally. like. Totally. Like, I, yeah. I almost sort of, to this day, think of him more in the category of fun uncle, yeah. like, opposed to my dad. But, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so dad went back to drinking. My dad, who operated heavy machinery, blacked out a few times. Oh my God. One of those times while he was at work, and one time while he was driving, and totally rode off his car. He claimed that the doctors concluded it was not due to his drinking, but the result of an old head injury he experienced when he fell off the back of his friend's motorcycle when he was younger. Always excuses. I know. According to Dad, he was sitting on the back of the bike with no helmet on and a box of beers under each arm when the bike went over a bump and he flew off, broke his arm, and got a major head injury. So Dad used to say that there was like basically dried blood in, in his brain that was causing these blackouts. I don't know he how... He said that or the doc, he reckons the doctor that, said That's it. what he reckons the doctor told him. Right. But I don't... I, I mean, how the hell would I know? No. At this point, I'm 15 yeah. and I'm, I take his word for it. I'm like, well, okay. I mean, I knew he drank and, and everything like that. But because of the head injury, dad lost his job. Like, he was no yeah. a, he was no longer able to be, like, operate heavy machinery. Well, no. Because he kept blacking out and, you know, that... Dangerous. He yes. could kill himself or someone oh, else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, yeah, so from that point on, he would always go to work, come home after work. Oh, I've had a hard day. I've done my job. I deserve to have a drink. Then all of a sudden, he's not able to work anymore. So he just starts drinking kind of earlier in the day. He sits around like, you know, I used to come home from school and the motorsport would be on literally a thousand oh, decibels. God. It was so loud. And to this day, I cannot watch any motorsport. And like he'd be there in the living room a cloud of tobacco smoke just like floating around his head. It's like a trigger. Totally, totally. And so it wasn't long until mum was like, I am actually kind of sick of this. She'd certainly done her time. Yeah, she she gave him an ultimatum. She basically said, either you stop drinking now or you need to move out. And dad's like, okay, I'll move out. (laughs) So he moved into a new place just up the road and... Mum and Dad always remained really good friends, and they mm. never even bothered to get divorced. Three months after Dad had moved out, he was over at Mum's um, house where, you know, as a teenager, I still lived, and he was fixing something on Mum's car, 
and he was holding the screwdriver above his head because my mum at the time was all into having like a little Peugeot convertible <laughs> and there was like a leak in the in the soft top roof. So he was holding a screwdriver above his head, screwing something and he just lost control of his hand. He had a major stroke. Then, yeah. right, wow. And mum's like that. in a total panic. So I called an ambulance, they came, they picked that up and yeah, he, he had what we now to believe to be his first major stroke. Wow. So the stroke didn't kill him, but it fucked him up pretty good. Oh, sure. Yeah, Dad was always a super intelligent guy, but he no longer knew what was appropriate to say in front of kids or me, his teenage daughter. Like, he would tell really inappropriate jokes. Or... Yeah, I think, I think you know, if it affects the frontal lobe, yeah. um, you can definitely have personality changes, and it can be quite scary. And I think he did. So from that point on, from that first major stroke, Dad lived another 10 years. After the stroke, there was even more of a shift in yeah. in the dynamic of our relationship. And he really became, you know, more like a crazy uncle yeah. than, than, than my parent. Um, so not only did he sort of have some personality changes, he also became very, very unsteady on his feet. Mm. He could still walk around, but he was very wobbly. And, of course, he was still drinking, so he'd he'd get drunk and he'd fall quite a lot. He actually had this um, naughty friend who will remain nameless who used to take (laughs) – after mum and dad separated, they went to Thailand a lot, and Ah. dad started a relationship with a Thai lady. Now, in dad's defense, I think he was maybe in his 50s at this point, and the lady that he was seeing was in her early 40s, so it wasn't, like, super gross. Yeah. But he would still go over and see her like a couple of times a year. And because he was over there drinking, he would fall oh. and he'd wind up in a Thai hospital for months on end. And, really? I yeah. didn't even know this so. Yeah, I know. It was kind of hectic. But like he said, the the, ho- the hospitals over there were like beautiful, like five-star yeah, resorts. I think they so. actually, yeah, they are. And he probably got really well looked after. So my dad really was like all about having fun and looking after mm. number one. And that's actually a common side effect of people that drink is the age that they start heavily drinking mentally, they don't mature. So really? that's, I mean, that's what mum always used to say to me. And she was a, you know, she used to go to um, she Al-Anon a lot, you yeah. know, to deal with dad's bullshit. So <laughs> she yeah. said that dad, dad sort of really found whiskey when he was 25. So even though he was a grown up and responsible for a family, the things that were important to him when he was 25 were still the things that were important to him. That's so interesting. Yeah, so he and was... it does make sense. Yeah, he was still, like, all he cared about was, like, listening to rock and roll and buying fast cars and, drinking. you know, and drinking. Anyway, where was I? So over the next 10 years, after that first major stroke, we believed that Dad had a series of mini-strokes that sort of kind of went a little bit undiagnosed. And his ability to walk and care for himself diminished greatly. However, his ability to drink never changed. (laughs) For the last five years, he had a live-in caregiver. And towards the end, he couldn't walk at all. He literally spent probably 24 hours a day in this this lazy boy. And he had to be, like, toileted and (gasps) and showered and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah. It was a long process of him being unwell like that. And it was really bizarre to be 16 and no longer view your father as, like, a authority figure it is weird yeah yeah and I also had about 10 years to prepare for my father's death mentally I I expected that he would just have another big stroke and that would be the end of it but eventually we found out he wasn't able to swallow and Uh. he started having a sore throat so they took him to the doctor and they found out that after years of smoking and drinking he had developed throat cancer it's quite common Yeah, yeah but by that point he was already so physically weak that 
the only treatment they offered him was like a few sort of rounds of radiation. So yeah. he went into hospital. He had a little bit of radiation. They put in a stint in his throat to try oh, and yeah. hold it open so he could eat and drink. Wow. But essentially three months after getting the news that he had cancer, he had passed away. And honestly, you know, he, he essentially starved to death. It was well, yeah. It was scary and it was hard to watch. Oh, horrible, Zoe. And, you know, the cancer with dad never got to his brain and... The day that I, we, you know, hospice were going and seeing him every day. And at this point I was a flight attendant. I was supposed to go away and they said, you know, he doesn't have long left to live. So mum and I decided we would go and stay with him that night. And, you know, he like a, he had a hospital bed in his living room at this point. Mum was asleep on the couch and uh, I was going to sleep in the armchair next to him. And um, his last words before he sort of closed his eyes that night and didn't wake up was, whiskey <gasps> Which, well i hope he's drinking a lot of whiskey oh, in heaven. i'm I know. sure he is i'm sure him and mum will be sharing a little tittle um a little tipple i think is what i meant to say <laughs> not a little tittle um <laughs> well you never know yeah yeah mum wasn't really much of a drinker she'd have one or two and she, she you know i even got the little that what are they called those little sponges on the stick oh, and yeah. i like dipped a little bit of whiskey in oh. it and like dabbed it on his lips but I think that was probably the wrong thing to do because I think it fucking burned on the way down and he oh. yelled out. But did he? Yeah, but but he he like I said, his last word was whiskey and he like cracked up laughing like with a big cheesy grin. So that's and that's like your auntie, yeah, pro your dad's sister. Um, I was actually with her in in her rest home and the last thing she said was cigarette. Was and, it? And she, I gave her one. Yeah, that's all she wanted, and then passed oh. away a couple of hours later. Oh. So that's my dad's sister. She passed away uh, 10 days after mum, actually. So, Yes, it's been a lot, hasn't it? There has, there has. Um, So that night mum and I stayed up at dad's house and she went to sleep on the couch and I was sort of dozing in the um, armchair next to dad. And at 3.30 in the morning, I just suddenly got this gut feeling like dad had sort of been doing the death rattle, like that sort of heavy breathing for a while. But I just, I just felt a shift. Mm. There was a shift. There was something the energy alerted. changes. I yeah, yeah something alerted that. me. Like now's the time, and I sat up, and sure enough, Mum and I put on his favorite music. We listened to Pink Floyd, "Comfortably Numb." Oh, nice. And with us either side of him holding his hands, he just oh. took his last breath and slowly passed away. So in the end, it was quite peaceful. It definitely was. Even though, like I said, we weren't super close still your dad oh he was still my dad and he was still so proud of me and my brothers and he loved us to death and my oldest brother who we have different mums but the same dad he lived in Australia and he couldn't get back over in time and then my other brother was in Canada at the time so it was me and mum we got to be there together and I don't regret it for a second I'm so happy I was able to be there with dad yeah and he would be so pleased too yeah So unlike dad's illness, mum's illness was super stressful for me. So my mum was spectacular. She was my best friend. And when she first got diagnosed with breast cancer, I just had my first baby. She had recently retired from working as a ward clerk at a hospital. She was staying at our place, as she often did to help with the baby, when she found a lump. She had... Uh, mastectomy and the rounds of chemo and about a year later she was told that she was in remission and mum was such a super tough Canadian lady I really thought that would be the end of it I know so did I yeah unfortunately that wasn't the case so about a year and a half I think it was approximately a year and a half later we went to Brisbane to visit my oldest brother so my mum's stepson 
And we were there for about 10 days. And while we were there, mum started saying that her chest really hurt. And she sort of thought it was because she had been picking up the children for 10 days straight and had pulled a muscle because she would come out and see us, stay with us for sort of two days a week, mm. but never continuously for 10 days. No, so, so she it sort, sort of made sense. Yeah, yeah, she's like, oh, I've overexerted myself and, and, you know, like these kids are getting heavy because by this point my oldest daughter was two and a half and then I had a chunky little six-month-old baby. And she was she was 68. Yeah, 69. 69. She was yeah, 69 so, at this yeah, point. So, yeah. um, so I think we got home on about the 15th of March and we had to self-isolate for 10 days because we'd been traveling and it was like this is when COVID really kind of became a big problem in New Zealand. And on the 26th of March was that very first big mm. like level four lockdown. So mum didn't go to the doctor that whole time. She just sort of stayed at home thinking that it's a pulled muscle, it's going to get better. But actually, I think maybe deep down she was she was nervous. I think so. Because she started coughing a lot as well. Yeah. And and I was like, what what's going on? Like, what's with the cough? And she's like, I'm nervous. She she thought the cough was... Did she say I'm nervous? She, she thought it was like she the cough was a result of her being anxious about going to the doctor. She oh, thought it was like a nervous cough. Darling, that's so... Obviously, yeah. it wasn't. So after that lockdown and her chest pain was still there, she went to the GP who sent her off to get some x-rays. And unfortunately, they came back and told us that the cancer had spread to her... The, the breast cancer had metastasized and spread to her lungs. Worst news ever. Oh, it was hideous. And the day that she found out that the cancer was back and it was in her lungs, she, just before she went to... Oh, sorry, just after she went to the doctor's appointment, she had to meet me at the vet because I had to put my darling 17-year-old oh, dog, Rocky, down. What a double whammy. Oh, That's man, like it was a fucking shit day, I'll tell you that. Two people in one day. Yeah, so she did show me the um, x-rays we went when we went to see the doctors and it just looked like... It almost looked like spider webs all yeah. through her lungs. That's a good metaphor because that's kind of what it is. It's not like a single bunch of cells you could remove. It yeah. sort of embeds itself everywhere. Like, yeah, because that's what I was thinking. Like, oh, can she just, you know, can you chop out part of her lung and mm. she'll still be sweet? But it was like literally like everywhere. cotton wool kind of in there. Oh. So we went to see the oncologist and they also let us know that the breast cancer had metastasized to her lungs also her liver and her breastbone. So oh. that's what was actually causing the pain in her chest was the cancer in the breastbone. Must have grown so quick. Uh, I don't understand how it does because it was, you know, they tell you you're cancer free and I then know. a year and a half later it's everywhere. Exactly. So at that stage, the doctor gave mum a life expectancy of about four years. And I was so shocked. I just burst into tears and just sobbed. And I'm not usually a crier, but honestly, I ugly cried for days. It's a funny thing with um, given time frames because for your mum, she lived a lot less, but then my mum lived two and a half years more. So Mm. I think they label it because in that moment, you just want answers. You want to know, you want to, it's a shock. You're suddenly thinking, you know, what's what's life going to be in front of me? So I think any life expectancy given, you have to take with an absolute grain of salt, like, you but know, the truth is they don't know. Either. No, and I was so desperate to know. Like I kept kind of, I, I kept wanting to know, you know, has, does something change this? Like does that mean we have more time now? Does this mean we have yeah, less time? Yeah, yeah. And, and they can't tell you. It's really every story and every journey is so different. And it's like how long is a piece of string? True. Like you just, you can't know. No. Anyway, looking back, 
I can see that there was a definitely a change in mum, even before we got the news that she was sick again. I remember she was sleeping more than usual and she seemed older and a bit dithery and was struggling way more with the kids. Mm. I actually, I feel terrible saying this, <laughs> but I actually got really pissed oh, off with her. Yeah. Because she was coming out and staying at my house for like two nights a week, as she always did, and she would spend the whole time on her own, reading a book in the corner, listening to an audio book, like totally disengaged from like me and the kids. Yeah. And I'm there like trying to cook dinner and the kids are screaming the fucking house down. They're pulling on my clothes. Witching hour. Yeah, total witching hour. And mum's just kind of in the corner reading a book. I'm like, (laughs) mum, you're retired now. I get it. If you want to sit in the corner and read a book, that's absolutely fine. But for the love of God, go do it at your own house. Because like, if you're here, I need your help. I I need you to play with the kids. I need you to distract them. Yeah. And obviously she was fucking exhausted and I didn't know it. And I just... At the time, I thought, she's just getting a little bit old. But mum mum was such a busy woman. She would come out to my house, and I don't know what's wrong with me, but I am physically incapable of staying on top of my laundry. <laughs> I can vouch for that. Yeah. <laughs> and mum would come to my house, and she would no shit. She would do 20 loads of laundry. She'd wash it, dry it, fold it, put it away, and then that sort of stuff. Not that I ever asked her to do it. She loved Mm, Two things mum loved doing, laundry and stacking the dishwasher. God (laughs) forbid anyone try and interfere with either one of those. But she loved it and she loved to help. And then I could see that she was really struggling. You know, she was struggling with getting the laundry basket out to the clothesline. And and here I am thinking, oh, well, she's just getting a little bit older. And I would compare her to my mother-in-law, who is so amazing with the kids and a total superwoman. But she's also 10 years younger than mum, so... Mm. And it's hindsight's one of those things, like you can't beat yourself up because it's like my auntie. When I used to go down there, I'd quite often have a nap. She never in her whole life had naps. She just didn't like it. But on the last visit, I, I noticed she was having naps. Yeah. And so I didn't think about it at the time, but she you must thought, have been really sick. Because she was retired then, right? She's 69. Like she could do whatever she wants. Like but I plan on napping when I'm retired. Well, I do it now. I would nap now if my children would leave me alone for an hour. Exactly. I'd absolutely nap now and like read a book quietly to myself like how blissful what a treat oh I can't imagine so yeah so anyway don't beat yourself up it's just one of those things yeah and, and obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. like now of course I know that mum was sick yeah but at the time I was just like oh come on mum I know you're taking like a relaxed lifestyle but this is a bit extreme <laughs> like you're here to help me aren't you yeah. and honestly I feel bad about that every couple of days I'll think what a fucking bitch I was oh look yeah. you just can't can't think like that. I know. So mum started doing treatment again, only this time it was palliative. So the idea was that it would improve the quality of her life and extend her life for as long as possible. But she started getting really mixed up. Um, She started getting forgetful and we asked the doctor if this was due to the medication and they did a bit more investigating and that's when we learnt that the cancer had actually spread to her brain. And that's when shit really started going downhill. She was told she could no longer drive, which was such a nightmare. We both live in Auckland, but I'm in Riverhead and she's in Milford. So I would go out to her house to pick her up, to bring her out for a couple of days. And by the time we get home, she's getting ready for bed. She needs to take her bedtime medication. And she's like, oh, (laughs) I've forgotten all my medication at home. Oh, no. So I'd have to get back in the car. It's like two-hour trip. Oh, it's in Auckland shitty traffic. It is 
such a nightmare. And when you know they're sick, you can't, I mean, you can't get angry because it's really not their fault. No, she never did it on purpose, but it only took us doing that twice to realize we need to have like a little checklist. Like you're you're coming to my house for the weekend. Like, what do you need? Make sure you've got it. That's a really good idea. Yeah, make sure you've got it before you leave the house because it's not their fault. They can't help it. No, no, that's right. Um, So we made a roster with all of mum's friends to take her to appointments at the hospital and eventually she took advantage of the drivers that hospice would provide. Mum was adamant that she wanted to stay home for as long as possible, but it got to a point where that was no longer safe. She started having quite a few falls and she couldn't remember what medication she needed to be taking and when. So with the help of a few of her friends, we decided that she would move in with me and my family permanently. My husband, Thomas, is a builder and he had just renovated the bathroom in our little granny flat. So Perfect timing. I know, it was all perfect and new and we made it nice and cosy and homely for her. So, yeah, she had her own space. That's she could get away from the kids, but she was here. I could manage her medication and she'd be well looked after. Once she was officially living with us on a permanent basis, she deteriorated really quickly. She began to lose the use of her hands and was in a constant state of confusion. For me, the hardest part was the loss of her personality. I found I could help with doing the toileting and cleaning up if she had had an accident. And honestly, I didn't think I'd be able to do that sort of stuff. You know, I, know. I don't have a medical background. You don't actually know what you're capable of till you're faced till with you it. Till you have to do it, yeah. There's no one else, you're it. Exactly, and you know, you want them to be as comfortable as possible. Oh, yeah. So and, and maintain their dignity. And you know that they're not doing it on purpose. And how quick is role reversal, right? Totally, <laughs> so fast. Um, but before mum got sick, I would call her every day, at least once, usually more, just to catch up with her and talk about absolutely nothing. And all of a sudden, here she is in my house, and I just want to gas bag about the latest episode of The Bachelor or whatever, and (laughs) I just get no response from her. It was so hard. That's still hard. I'm constantly here, like a little bit of gossip or something interesting, and I think, oh, my God, I've got to call mum and tell her. She'll love this. Yeah, and to be truthful, Zoe, that actually never goes away. You learn to live with it, and then... It just becomes part of life. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I still tell mum, yeah. like, pretending she's there. Yeah, and I'm sure she hears you. She does. Yeah. One morning, Thomas was getting ready for work, and I asked him to check on mum before he left, and he came rushing back into the house, totally panicked. Mum had fallen and broken her nose. Oh, no. I know. I found her in a crumpled, bloody heap inside the glass sliding door. It was fucking horrendous. Oh, God. She got taken to the hospital in an ambulance and checked over, And while she was out, I rearranged everything and we turned the downstairs spare room, um, which Thomas was using as an office, we made that her bedroom. Yeah, it was so lovely. Yeah, and so she moved into the the main house so I could really keep an eye on her. After she moved into the main house and into a hospital bed, she had passed away within a couple of weeks. Oh, so quick. So that deterioration at the end was really, really quick. So quick. And that is my story. So thank you so much for listening. Um, That was part one of episode one, and in part two, we'll hear from Lizzie, who will talk a little bit about her experiences and her story. Yes, that's what's next. Yeah. And that's us for today. Thank you so much for listening to us waffle on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Feel free to follow us on Instagram at deathandalltherest, or if you have any questions or queries you'd like to know, Or if you'd simply like to share your story, you can send us an email at daatrpodcast at gmail.com.
This podcast was born out of a need to talk about our personal experiences with death. To be clear, we are not mental health professionals. We are simply sharing our stories. 